Today we look at a man who goes so crazy, he becomes an urban legend. And then we meet a young man driving down the road to visit his girlfriend on a rainy afternoon. But when he loses control of his car and it goes over an embankment, he's hoping for a miracle. Instead, he finds a mystery. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. Hope you guys are ready for some cool paranormal action coming into Dead Rabbit Command right now. Everyone on your feet and be prepared to salute one of our Thanksgiving livestream donators. Give it up for Rudy Jazz. Rudy Jazz, longtime Patreon supporter as well. Rudy, thank you so much for supporting the show. You guys can't support the Patreon or support the show financially. I totally understand that. Just help spread the word about the show really, really helps out a lot. Rudy Jazz, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We're headed all the way out to Dover, Delaware. And as we're headed back there, Rudy, go ahead and hit that time travel button. We're going back to the late 90s, early 2000s. So... Matrix, Shrek, a bunch of other movies came out in this time period. Music was so good. Some 41, Blink-182, Eiffel 65. You had all the hits. All the hits in this time period. And we're listening to them on repeat. I'm blue. The whole time, headed out to Dover, Delaware. And by the time we get there, we got we need to get some food. We we just drove across the country with no food and listening to Eiffel 65 on repeat. It's also driven us a little insane. We're headed to the Stop and Shop in Dover, Delaware. We see an old man just standing there in front of the store. And as we're walking up, we figure maybe this is the shopkeeper. This is Dover, Delaware. Maybe the shopkeeper, maybe they do something different here. Maybe the shopkeeper stands outside and does all the money transactions out there. I don't know. But then the old man begins walking back and forth in front of the door of the stopping shop. And it's not like a casual walk, like he's smoking a cigarette and then walking back and forth. He's walking like a guard at attention. Now, he wasn't making that noise, but that was supposed to be the sound of his little legs. And he's walking back and forth, and sometimes he would walk like a little army man in front of the door, but a lot of times he would just stand there. And the children called him the Guardian. They made fun of this old man who looked like a guard standing in front of the Stop and Shop, which is where they bought their whatchamacallit bars. One day, this narrator, the person who's telling us this story, he goes online by the name Ben Lucas 10, which I think is a cartoon reference, but we'll call him Ben. Ben is riding in a car. He's like a tween at this point. Because this guy had been doing this for years, walking in front of the stop and shop. And one day, Ben is riding in his best friend's grandpa's car down the street. And the best friend and Ben look and they see the guard and he's walking back and forth in front of the store. And they kind of laugh because they make fun of this guy, right? He's a big old weirdo. The grandpa driving the car turned to him and said, don't ever laugh at that man. Ben looks at his friend and they kind of look at the grandpa and they're like, what? Do you know his story? You just thought he was a crazy guy. And the grandpa goes, well, you're half right. <laughs> he didn't actually say that. It was Don't quote him. I don't want this grandpa's ghost to come to sue me in ghost court. 
but he does tell the story. He didn't say it that dramatically, but he does tell this story. What happened was he used to know this dude. He used to know this guy back in the 1970s. He was a soldier at Dover Air Force Base. Very dedicated, honorable soldier working out of Dover. Now, Dover, it's not well known, but Dover apparently is a refrigerator base. Which, I don't know if that's their official designation. I don't know if they have a patch for this. But when bodies of Americans are coming back to the United States, if something happens to them overseas, they get taken to Dover, and then they are stored there for a while, and then flown to their families in the United States. Which makes sense. Instead of having a hundred different planes coming from a hundred different parts of the world, you send them all here. It's a sorting facility. And a lot of times you would have casualties of military operations or just horrible accidents. They'd be flown over from Germany, flown over from Japan or the Middle East or wherever. They end up at Dover. But in November of 1978, the man who worked at the Dover Air Force Base, let's call him Bruce. Bruce is assigned a very special role at the Air Force Base. He's been assigned to be a guard. There is a warehouse-style building, and in it are the victims of the Jonestown Massacre. In November of 1978, the cult of Jim Jones in Guyana committed mass suicide. <laughs> that shouldn't be a revelation to anyone into conspiracy theory or true crime. It is a very, very interesting story. but. 918 people died in Guyana. One third of them were children. They were brought there by their parents to be part of this cult. And because of his madness, he had everyone commit suicide. Some of them did it. They didn't know they were drinking poison. Some of them were shot with crossbows when they tried to run off into the jungle. It's a horrible story. And the majority of those people came from America. So all of a sudden you had Bruce, who was a guard at Dover Air Force Base, guarding a warehouse full of hundreds of bodies. And he watched them. He stood guard over them, which would make sense because we didn't know. I'm sure they usually have guards patrolling areas, but this was a cult. And I'm sure they figured that someone would may come to try to get the bodies or, you know, because you still had worshipers of Jim Jones out there. Not a lot, not a lot, but they don't know that. So you would want someone to guard the bodies of this horrible, horrible massacre because who knows what other use they could be put to. So he apparently is guarding the bodies and he's in this warehouse night after night after night. And they are shipping these bodies out as much as they can. They're trying to find these people's families so they can then fly them out of Dover Air Force Base so the family can receive and put the remains to rest. But he stood there every night. He stood guard. And every night he stood there and thought about the powerless children who were swept up into this cult, laying next to their lifeless parents, or even worse, these bodies being separated puzzle piece-like. 
children corpses among strangers while their parents lay somewhere else. <laughs> I've been getting complaints about how dark this show has gotten, and I apologize, but I have to show how insane this guy is going. Right? You're like, Jason, you're not trying to drive me insane, are you? No, this is this guy. And he's sitting in there night after night, and he's pondering all of this horror. Hundreds and hundreds of bodies sit behind him. If you think your job sucks, imagining going, imagining having to work here for like the fifth day in a row. He begins to smell the bodies. And whether that is actual because the decaying process is overriding the preservation, or he's hallucinating, because you can't hallucinate smells. We talked about that on yesterday's episode. He begins to smell the bodies, but then he begins to see things. And so when he reports what's going on to his supervisors on the Air Force Base, they quietly relieve him of duty. And he hasn't been right since. So the grandpa driving the car says, that is that man. After they, he got an honorable discharge and after he left the military, that's what he does all day long. He stands guard outside the stop and shop. I love... These type of stories. I love these neighborhood quirky individuals. It, I just love stories like this. And they're always super obscure. Anytime pre-internet, this story would have... It's not the most important story in the world, is it? But it's so fascinating to me. And it's fascinating that the internet lets us share these local legends. Because otherwise you never would have heard about this. Or the Catman of Grenock. Or Joe Trombone. Max Kramer, all these local weirdos. Stephen Lightfoot. All of the... I just love this stuff. I absolutely love this stuff. And that would weigh on you, right? That would weigh on you. On the one hand, you know, I grew up in the mortuary business. Or I spent my teenage years in the mortuary business. And it is very mechanical and very methodical. And you do kind of remove yourself from the idea that you're dealing with the human body. You, you realize that. But you don't think of it as having the human soul anymore. It's simply this container. But I remember something my dad told me when he was in the business. He said, when you're dealing with the dead, you have to be so respectful towards them. He goes, because you're going to be the last person to ever touch their physical body. So don't sit there and eat a ham sandwich on top of it. Don't tip your cigarette into its mouth. It is a lifeless husk. The body is gone. But somebody loved this body. A mother loved this body. Someone loved being in this body. Other people loved this body. So you you just have to be respectful because you will be the last person to ever interact with this person. And this guard was doing that. He was guarding these as much as he was guarding any precious cargo or, or jewels, anything. He put his soul into that and it did break him. I guess there's no upside to it other than that it's an interesting story. The narrator goes on to say he passed away 10 years ago, but he hopes that more people know this story and what a hero he was because he took a job that I doubt a lot of people could do. I would have a hard time doing it, and I spent a lot of time in the mortuary business. It's just so... The, I, okay, I was about to tell a mortuary story, but this episode has gotten more depressing than I wanted to, and that's so funny because... 
Rudy, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys of the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Dover, Delaware. We're going to salute the guardian of the stop and shop as we fly away. I hope you have found peace in death. <laughs> That's supposed to sound better than it did. Rudy, fly us out of here. We are headed all the way out to Kentucky. And I want to do really, really quick Dead Rabbit Recommends. I saw this movie the other night. I really enjoyed it. And I got to be honest, I slept on this. I laughed at this movie. I read the reviews of this movie and I go, oh, that looks super dumb. Oh, I saw like a clip. I was like, oh, those special effects look like trash. I watched it the other night and I really enjoyed this movie. I, I, I want to see a sequel. I was actually thinking about buying the book. And I never read. I never read anything. Well, I read articles and stuff like that, but books... It's called The Silence. It is a Netflix movie. It's basically, it was, it came out right after A Quiet Place. It's the same premise. These monsters show up and they can't see you, but they can hear you. And they brutally eat you. This movie is dope. I'll be honest, this movie to me is better than A Quiet Place. And if you're like, I didn't like A Quiet Place anyways, I don't like that genre, that's fine. But this movie, it's the begin. The problem I hate with stuff like A Quiet Place and a lot of newer zombie movies, they start off, you put it in, and they go three years after the event. I don't care about three years after the event. That's boring. If I want to learn about people rebuilding society, I'll read a history book. I want to see about right now, day one, hour one of these end of the world stories. And that's what the silence is. The silence is like two, the first two weeks of this. And it, listen, the special effects are garbage. The special effects are really, really bad. They're asylum level special effects. A car blows up and they just paint an explosion on. It's embarrassingly bad. But the acting's good. It stars Stanley Tucci and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Not Melissa Joan Hart, but the new one. It's fast-paced. It's super dark. It has some really, really creepy scenes in it. And it's funny because there are some really dumb things in it, the special effects being the main one. But the story's intriguing enough. It's a basic end-of-the-world story, but it's done in a well enough way, and the characters make some really, really bad decisions. But you go, that's what you would do in real life. You wouldn't be think. You wouldn't think... Three days through, you're thinking, what's going to happen in the next hour? I'm going to do... It's, I really enjoyed it. So, if you guys are looking... It's a great end-of-the-world movie. If you guys are looking for a good end-of-the-world movie this weekend, check out The Silence. I totally slept on it. And I want to know more about this world and these creatures and things like that. So, check it out. I, 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 I often fall victim to... And I think a lot of people do this, but I definitely do this. Critics. And when critics are like, oh, that movie sucked, that movie sucked, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't have time to watch it anyway, so maybe it sucked. And then I watch it years later, and I was like, what in the world? Did the same thing with War in the Worlds, dude. That movie's dope. I That movie gets slept on to this day, and what a shame. I mean, I guess there's other things that are more shameful. Things like the Jonestown Massacre and cults taking people's lives for ego. But, but the second most shameful thing is critics making me not watch movies. The reason why we're headed to Kentucky is because of my aforementioned doing too many dark stories. It wasn't that I did too many dark stories. What happened was, I mentioned this before on Monday's episode. Last Friday, I did an episode. You're like, Jason, please don't bring it up again. Please don't bring it up. I did an episode Friday about a co-worker of mine who was blind. And it was this story about like this workplace drama and all this stuff was going on. 
And it just kind of had this open-ended, and it was a little depressing. And because of that, Cantillion's longtime supporter of the show, long, long time supporter of the show, hit me up and said, dude, that was way, way too depressing. I'm going to send you something a little more lighthearted to kind of balance out the yin-yang of the show. Totally awesome. Totally, totally awesome. And he sent me this story. And the story, this article, I keep calling it a story. This is apparently a real story. It was written by Bill Love. It's a guy named Bill Love who told this story. So we're going to go back in time to the year 1961 as Bill is driving down a Kentucky road. Specifically, we're headed down Highway 40, which is in between Paintsville, Kentucky and Williamsport. And this area is known as Two Mile Hill. He's driving his car. He's actually not driving his car. He's driving his dad's VW Bug. Now, he'd been driving down this road many, many times before. He's leaving his house to go visit his girlfriend. But he wasn't familiar with how his dad's VW Bug drove. So, it's going up Two Mile Hill. And it's drizzly. It's been a slightly rainy morning. So, the roads are a little slick, a little too curvy. And a young man behind a car that he's not familiar with is a terrible recipe. I tried eating it once, and I threw up. He loses control of his VW bug, and it goes off the embankment. As the car is driving down this embankment, he hits a rock outcropping, and the car goes airborne for 50 feet. Are you just telling his Jason Bourne novels at this point? No. It's airborne for 50 feet until, luckily, it lands on all four tires and comes to a stop. The first thing that Bill does is the limb check. I don't know if this is the actual name for it, but I do it all the time. Whenever I hear a gunshot, it got used to this growing up. Whenever I heard a gunshot, I would never know if I was hit by a stray bullet. Because I'm extremely paranoid and I live in bad neighborhoods. So the first thing I will do is I will look at my arms and my legs to make sure that I have no external injuries. And then I'll usually brush my hand across my head. And if I don't feel any blood, if I don't, because you won't feel it. A lot of times you'll get shot and you can just, the people will say, I didn't know I was shot until my clothes got wet. And you look down, there's blood everywhere. So it is important when you do, when you get, do get in an accident, I go leg, leg, arm, arm, I look, and then I kind of rub my hand over my head to make sure that I'm not bleeding anywhere. You don't want to stand up and have, you know, one of your legs gone and then you tumble down. So he does that. He does that. He actually makes sure that all of his limbs are there. And he notices there's a little bit of blood on him. He has some cut from the broken glass, which again, in 1961, I'm pretty sure everything was real glass. Not that breakaway stuff. And his rearview mirror is busted off. The car's a total mess. But he gets out of the car, and he's kind of looking around. Now, it's still drizzling outside, and he's looking up at this embankment. It's pretty far away, but I, I can make it, but... I, I'm going to need something to walk up with. So he looks down and he sees like this sapling that he's going to use as a crutch. And when he bends down to get it, all of a sudden his entire face gets wet. And he stands up and he puts his hand back. And what has happened is his entire scalp has been peeled off of him. And it's hanging down, touching his neck. You can feel the loose skin back there. And then he reaches up, and when he touches his head, he realizes he's touching his skull. 
Now, Cantillions is the one who said this was a more upbeat story. It is a really cool story. Thank you for sending it. Well, what a gruesome... Can you imagine feeling your own skull? See, that's why you do the check. That's why you do the check. Because now he's bleeding profusely. And he's like, now I really need to get up this hill. This is 1961. I got to keep hammering at home. Because even when I was reading the story, I was like, oh, you know, like a cell phone. Go to the neighbors and call. This is 1961 rural Kentucky. There's not even anyone around, living around him, let alone the fact that they might have a satellite phone. And he's sitting there and he takes his skin and he puts it back over his head. And he's just kind of flapping there like a hood, but now it's at least slightly covering up the gaping wound. And he goes, I gotta get up out of here. And when he turns and he's kind of brushing blood away from his eyes to kind of see, because now he is bleeding profusely. It's coming all over him. He turns and he looks, and for the first time, he'd been down this road a lot of times, he looks and there's a house. He looks over and he's looking at this house. He goes, I've never seen that house before. And then, through his bloodied vision, he sees movement on the porch. There's a man sitting there watching Bill try to hobble up the embankment. Bill's watching him too, and he sees this man get up and walk towards a car. There's a car parked in the driveway of this house. But it's through all these trees. It's through all this brush. And before Bill can really make a decision to walk towards the house, which I imagine would be easier, he continues going up the embankment. And then suddenly, he sees the car at the top. It's idling on the roadside. And a man rolls down the passenger window and yells to him, If you can make it to the top, I'll take you to the hospital. Now, that is a challenge, right? He's just covered in blood. He just got out of this horrible car accident. But the man won't help him. The man is just sitting in the car and watches as Bill finds the strength. I mean, he needs to get out of here. He will bleed to death. And he finds the strength and he makes his way through the trees and gets up to the road and gets in the car. And the driver begins heading into town. Bill described the driver as a very nondescript 40-year-old man. Just wearing like a beige shirt and pants, slacks, and a fedora. And he's driving his car down towards the city. Bill said even the car was nondescript. He goes, I really couldn't make out the make or the model, but it reminded me of a car from the 1940s. And we're driving down this road together. I'm bleeding profusely. It's coming straight out of my head. And this man goes, you know what? I was in the war. You're going to bleed out. You're about to die. We need to stop the bleeding right now. The man gives Bill his jacket and says, you need to put this on your head. You need to hold it on your head as hard as possible. We need to staunch that bleeding. And Bill said the guy had never seen this guy before. He knew his way around town, though, because when he asked what hospital did I want to go to, I said the clinic. And he goes, yeah. And he drove him right there. He knew exactly where the clinic was. And as they're pulling up to the clinic, the man says an odd thing. He goes, I can't get out of the car. Can you make it in okay? And Bill doesn't question this. He doesn't question this until later. But he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. I can be totally fine. And he took the jacket, he gave it back to the man, the blood-soaked jacket, 
gives it back to him, and walks into the clinic. He needed 55 stitches. <laughs> this wasn't he woke up from a dream in the middle of the night and he was holding a bloody jacket, which would be alarming enough. This was real. He needed 55 stitches and he needed to stay in the hospital for a couple days. He lost so much blood they had to transfuse more blood into him. When his dad picks him up to take him home, the dad says, Hey, you know what? Listen, Bill, we should stop by that dude's house and give him some money because <laughs> you've ruined his jacket at the very least. Most likely there's blood all over his car. Let's go by, tell him thanks, give him some cash to help clean stuff up. And Bill's totally fine with that. Bill's like, yeah, I kind of want to meet him again, right? Say thanks. So as they're driving down the road, you can't. he realizes, because this is the first time he's been in this area since the accident, as they're driving down the road, Bill realizes, oh, you can't see the house from the road. That's why I drove past this so many times and never saw that house. But you can see the driveway. And as they're driving down Highway 40, sure enough, they see that little driveway leading down to a house just off the road. But when the dad drives his car down... Bill notices something's off. This house looks like it hasn't been lived in for decades. It's completely decrepit. Now, that's fine, right? He didn't say that the old man lived there. We just saw the old man sitting on the porch. When they get out and they look around, the house appears to be empty. There's nothing in this ramshackle building. Not even cigarette butts on the porch. Because he wasn't smoking a cigarette in the car driving him. So what happened to the cigarette that he was smoking before he picked him up? There's no cigarette butts on the ground. It doesn't look like anyone's lived in this house for years. And he's looking at the driveway and it's covered in weeds. So he's thinking, how in the world? I don't remember seeing weeds the first time I looked over the driveway. To be fair, it was quite a distance and I had blood all over my face and I just got brain damage. But this place doesn't look like anyone's lived here in a long, long time. There's not even a footprint. Just an empty house off a highway. But this empty house had a miracle living inside of it. To this day, he really can't explain what happened. And it's one of those stories that how could you? The most rational answer, because he, he wouldn't have hallucinated it. That's what's interesting about this. We know he got a ride to the clinic. There's a lot of times people get injured and they hallucinate stuff. There, I had a friend who got in a motorcycle accident and thought he was in a pumpkin patch for a while. But he didn't, he didn't come home. He didn't come home with a giant pumpkin. And they're like, where'd you get that from? And he's like, I don't know. Like it was fake. It was a hallucination. He got his brain so rattled that he thought he was somewhere else. But he showed up at the clinic in a car. And his car was in the middle of the road. So he didn't walk. He would have bled to death. So we know that that realistic thing happened. That's a really cool thing. And thanks, Cantillion, again for sending this over. That's a really cool thing we can kind of hang our hat on. Or hang our scalp on. One of the answers that he was putting forward... That it's possible that this person didn't want to be seen by the police. This might, might have been someone on the run. And they were staying at this house just for the day. And it would explain why they might have come back and cleaned up any evidence. It would explain why they didn't want to get out of the car at any point. But it wouldn't explain why they would help a bloody person in the first place. Maybe they're a good-hearted criminal, but if you're on the run from the law, you're making a decision. Then you also look at stuff like guardian angels, like ghosts. 
right? I think the idea that he won't get out of the car, like we never saw him. It's so weird because we see him walking into the car, but after that, he refuses to get out. So we know that he can physically walk into a car. One of the suggestions, because he's told other people about the stories, one of the suggestions that he's heard over the years was maybe the person was not able to physically able to get out of the car. Maybe they had paralysis. They couldn't move their legs. And he goes, he could drive a stick shift. <laughs> this guy didn't seem to have a problem with a stick shift. Was it just one of those cars? So... And he saw him walk into the car. So what, what was it a time traveler? Was it someone on the run? Was it a guardian angel and they chose to take this form? Just a bizarre story all around. So the paranormal doesn't always have to be dark. The paranormal can sometimes be as lighthearted as a man whose scalp gets ripped off of his skull and is forced to walk up a cliff just so he can get some stitches. But it's so fascinating to me that this man, his life was saved. One of the most important events in his life is just one big mystery. He will always wonder who that man was and why he acted in such bizarre ways. And he'll never have any answers. He'll go through life knowing that his life was saved by a mystery. He may not know who saved him. But he will always remember the man who never existed. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also go to sub at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.